Hey, if you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, welcome. Uh, we're very glad that you would come and be with us. And I just want to let you know, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, whether you are uh, a longtime Christian or whether you're brand new to this whole thing, wherever you're at on your journey, you are welcome here. And we're glad that you're here. And we hope that you find this a community where you can learn a little bit more about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow Him in the world today. And so, uh, hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Going to continue on in our series this morning, God and Sexuality, looking together at Paul's words to the church in Corinth, first century Corinth, and specifically what he writes to that church in the sixth and seventh chapters. And so, are you with me? If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one actually in the uh, pews in front of you. There should be Bibles there. You can grab one of those. And let's pray together, shall we? Our great God and Father, we come to you now as the God who speaks. You are there and you are not silent. You have revealed yourself to us in creation. You have revealed yourself to us in Jesus, and you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we pray that as we open up your revelation now, God, that you would speak and that you would give us ears by your spirit to be attentive to your voice. And I ask, God, that the words, that the the vision that is given to us in this text might be formative for our own lives that we would be a community that faithfully embodies your love in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So in March 2017, Time Magazine ran a cover story entitled, Beyond He or She, How a New Generation is Redefining Gender. And for the cover story, they interviewed uh, dozens of people from all around the U.S. about their attitudes towards sexuality and gender. And they talked to people from San Francisco all the way to small towns in Missouri. And uh, many said that they believed that both sexuality and gender are less like a toggle between this or that and more like a spectrum that allows for many even endless permutations of identity. Some of those young people identified as straight and others as gay and still others as gender queer or gender fluid or asexual or gender nonconforming and queer. Several said that they used the pronoun they rather than he or she to refer to themselves. And this variety of identities uh, reflects something we are seeing at the culture, in the culture at large. And Facebook with its one billion users has about 60 different options for gender. And the dating app Tinder has about 40. Commenting on kind of the situation in our culture, uh, one gay activist who was quoted in this magazine said this. She said, there have been generations that have lived by the rules and those generations that break the rules. Young people today, she says, are redefining everything. Young people today are redefining everything. Now, I don't know whether or not I agree with the statement that young people are redefining everything. I guess it kind of depends on who those young people are and where they live. It also depends upon what we mean by everything. But I I do get the sense, and I think most of us do, that the landscape that we live in when it comes to sexuality and gender is shifting at a rapid pace, and it's difficult for many of us to keep up with it. And there are people in this room who you've, you've found yourself uncomfortable with the situation, you know, because the church increasingly finds itself out of step with the broader culture. 
And so many of us find ourselves fearful and anxious, and we're concerned about what the professors are teaching at school, what our kids and our grandkids are being taught in schools. Uh, some of us are being con- or we're concerned about legislation, even passed uh, or, you know, in the House uh, this last week, and what it might mean for freedom of speech and religion. And more personally, some of you may have felt conflicted about your own sexuality or maybe known people in your family that do. And if you find yourself in any one of these places, these issues are complicated, they're difficult, they're anxiety-producing. But it's important to note that we are not the first generation of Christians that have found ourselves radically out of step with the broader culture when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender. In fact, uh, in first century Corinth, the cultural values and norms when it came to sexuality were even more at odds with the values of Christ and His church than we find in our own day and age today, in our own day and age today. And in our text, Paul actually reaches out to address this church with all of its complications. In first century Corinth, uh, it was typical for a Roman man to have a wife for childbearing, a mistress to be seen in public with, and then servants for pleasure, and that was totally legal and fine. Uh, The temple Aphrodite's with its thousand temple prostitutes sat right in the center of the city, and sexual exploitation and the abuse of women and children were just rampant in the culture, and it was totally normal and fine. And so do you see, this was a community, this was a city that was radically at odds with the values that Jesus was seeking to form in this church in the city. And I think what's instructive is that when Paul writes to this church, he doesn't write to them about how they can be agents to change the broader Corinthian culture. In fact, there's one part in uh, the book of Corinthians where Paul says, look, who are we to judge those outside of the church? Judgment shall begin with the house of the Lord. Instead of seeking to change the broader culture, what he's intent to do is to see the church formed into a community of sexual character that is fashioned after the character of Jesus himself. And so he clarifies for this church and for us this morning a biblical vision for sexuality, and then he he exhorts us to seek to honor God with our bodies in this world. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be diving into a little section of verses you heard read for you. And this is a very unique, it's in some ways a very revolutionary passage of, 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 it's a a revolutionary uh, little paragraph about sexuality, and it's totally unusual and unique in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And so we're going to dive into it, and we're going to see in this very practical passage really a window into the biblical vision when it comes to sexuality. And so here's what I want to do today is I want us to kind of dive into this text. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, and then we're going to stand back, and I want us to ask the question, how might this biblical vision given to us in this text engage with our culture today as well as our own personal lives? So does that sound like a plan? All right. Well, ready or not, here we come, friends. Let's go. So look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now stop there. So within the broader Corinthian culture, there were two 
divergent attitudes when it came to sexuality. On the one hand, were those who said that essentially sex was an appetite. And so if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. And if you're sexy, you sex. Uh, Sex was just a biological appetite. It wasn't to have any guards or boundaries. You just went out and you met your need in whatever way you wanted to. On the opposite end of the spectrum were those in the culture who said that sex was dirty. In fact, there was a minor group, a minority group of philosophical, uh, of Stoic philosophers who believed that sexual engagement, that actually attachment to the opposite sex and getting involved in physical relationships would, would be to distract you from your philosophizing and from your spirituality. And so what they advocated was celibacy. They said, look, the best way for you to live in this world with a clear mind, with a spiritual heart, with a a, clear philosophy is to remain celibate. Sex is dirty, avoid it. And apparently there were some people in the church who actually came to embrace this attitude. They came to believe that sex was dirty and that it should be avoided and that the best course of action would be to choose the the path of celibacy. And this was happening in marriages in the church. Now, for obvious reasons, this was causing problems because there were, marriage, there were people in marriages who were saying, look, you know, I'm called to, mar- I'm called to celibacy in my marriage, honey. <laughs> and the spouse is saying, um, are you, I'm not. <laughs> How are we going to work this out? And so they write to Paul and they say, Paul, what's your opinion on this? And they're appealing to Paul to be uh, a defender of their position because Paul was single and celibate. So they thought, look, uh, let's ask Paul and he'll he'll be on our side. And so when when Paul says here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, that's not Paul's word to the church in Corinth. This is the matter about which they wrote him. He's quoting back to them their own statement. And then he responds to it. And what must have come as a surprise is his response to them. Notice how he responds. He says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He says, look, you should, if you are married, uh, you should have sex. Uh, Men, you should have sex with your wives. This is what he's saying in the Bible. This is the Bible. This is what the Bible's saying. And wives, you should have sex with your own husbands. Welcome to church. He says, each man should have sex with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And then he says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So Paul responds to their question, should we engage in sex within marriage? And Paul says, of course you should. Sex is a good gift and it's to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And Paul is not prudish about this. He is not bashful about it. So he says, go and enjoy your sexual relationships with your spouse. Now, he bases this advice on four principles that he believes, four things he assumes about marriage. And I want you to see this in the text. Notice first, Paul assumes that within the marriage context, there is to be mutual submission. And look how he puts it in verse uh, three, he's, or verse three, he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and the, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Now, what Paul says here at first would have resonated with the broader Corinthian culture because he says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And everyone in Corinth would have said, yes, that's exactly right. But then he turns it on its head and he says, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And with this, he completely revolutionizes everything that they believed. Nobody in first century Corinth believed that the, the, the husband belonged to the wife and that the husband needed to submit his body to the wife. And so do you see what Paul is advocating here? He is advocating mutual submission. He is saying, look, you are to mutually submit yourselves to one another because, secondly, he's also saying that within marriage, it's not only going to be marked by mutual submission, it's also going to be marked by mutual belonging. The husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's body belongs to the husband. In other words, when you covenant yourself to another person before a community of people, you are saying, look, I now am not my own. I belong to another. And so against the radical autonomy where oftentimes in American culture two individuals come together in marriage and they seek to live their individual and separate lives and yet live under the same roof, Paul says, no, when you are married, you enter into a covenant of mutual belonging. And so he says, look, a marriage is marked by mutual submission. It is marked by mutual belonging. But thirdly, a marriage is marked by mutual understanding. And look at how he puts it in verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. Now, here he's saying, he's saying, look, Within a marriage, he's imagining that two couple, or that a couple will have conversations and they will reach consensus and agreement. In other words, they will seek to understand one another, they will talk together, they will reach agreement together regarding the issues of the, the, the most uh, pertinent, kind of like intimate issues, their spirituality and their physical intimacy. He says, you'll talk together about this. You'll agree together about this. You're not going to have one party that is foisting their opinions on others and they're not being attentive to the needs of the other. He says, instead, there's going to be this mutual understanding. And then finally, he imagines that in the context of marriage, and you see this through the passage, that each member in the marriage relationship will be utterly concerned about the well-being of the other. In other words, you will not only be mutually submitting yourself to each other, you will be mutually, you know, giving your body to the other, you will be seeking to understand and know the other, but you will be seeking, according to Paul, to please and delight and bring satisfaction. You will seek the spiritual and the emotional and the physical well-being of the other. And so it is in this context that Paul imagines sexuality coming to its proper expression. And so let's sum it up like this. The biblical sexual ethic is this. Sex is a good gift to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage marked by mutual submission, mutual belonging, and sacrificial love that seeks the good of the other. And that is a compelling vision for sexuality, isn't it? And this is Paul's vision for sexuality within the context of marriage. Now, it is difficult to put into words how much this set at odds with the broader culture. 
and how disruptive it was in the first century, this passage contains some of the most underappreciated, radical, and progressive stuff in the New Testament, and here's why. There was a writer named Tom Holland, uh, not to be confused with the, the great um, actor who plays Spider-Man, Tom Holland, probably the best Spider-Man we've had yet, don't you think? We can, give him, can we give him an applause? We can do, sure, thank you. But Tom Holland actually, not that Tom Holland, but a different Tom Holland is a, is a great writer, one of the most prolific and compelling and well-known authors in England regarding writings of the ancient world. And he said this, he said, the Greco-Roman world is a terrifyingly alien place to most of us. It was built on systemic exploitation. The entire economy was founded upon slave labor. The sexual economy on the absolute right of free Roman males to have sex with anyone they wanted, any way they wanted. It is unspeakably cruel to our way of thinking. And here Paul, against every other voice in the culture, is calling for something radically different. He is calling for a radical alternative something that is unique in human history up to this point. He is challenging the cultural norms, and he is calling for an egalitarian communal vision and sacrificial love that has come to expression in marriage, marked by mutual submission, mutual belonging, mutual understanding, and seeking the good of the other by sacrificing yourself. In other words, when sexuality comes to expression in marriage, it is not to be selfishly used by one party to satisfy himself at the exclusion of the spouse, nor is it to be selfishly used to control or to coerce or to manipulate or to punish or reward another, but rather it should be selflessly and joyfully given and received sexual pleasure in the context of this kind of healthy marriage where the dignity and the worth of the sexual desires and the body and the pleasure of both the husband and the wife are equally honored and respected. And this is Paul's vision. This is the vision in the Bible for sexuality. And now what I wanna do is I wanna stand back and I wanna take this vision of biblical sexuality right here and I want us to engage a little bit with where we are at as a culture. And I want to begin by noting for us where we might agree with the broader culture when it comes to sexuality, and then we'll note a couple areas of disagreements. And so let's first talk a little bit about where the church, where Christianity and its ethic agrees with the culture and its ethic. And there's two places. One is both Christianity and the culture affirms that sexual pleasure is good. Both Christianity and the culture affirm that sexual pleasure is good. Sometimes Christianity is caricatured as being repressive to our desires. But actually what Christianity says is that sexuality and sexual pleasure is good. It's a gift from God. It's part of our embodied existence. God created sex. He is the author of our bodies. He intended us to live in this world together in this sort of way. And so he is the author of sex, and so it's a good gift from his hand, and so both in the church as well as outside of the church, we believe that sexual pleasure is a good. Now, of course, we believe that there's a place for it, that there's boundaries, there's limitations, and it doesn't agree with the world's boundaries and limitations, but we both agree that sexual pleasure is good. But secondly, both the church, both Christianity and culture agree that sexuality and sexual desire can be distorted. 
Specifically, I think where we agree on where it can be distorted is when somebody who has power and maybe who has money and affluence and status uses their power and their money and their status to take their sexual desires and to coerce and to take advantage of somebody who is weaker than them. And this happens, of course, with rape. It happens with pedophilia. It has happened with the hashtag MeToo movement where you have bosses and you have, uh, you know, star athletes and you have politicians and you have priests who use their power in order to coerce somebody else and to abuse their power and to take advantage and to exploit somebody else sexually. And both the church as well as those outside of the church are calling foul and saying this is an abuse of power. This is a misuse of sexuality. This is sexual desire being perverted and distorted. And you know, underneath this point that sexuality can be distorted is another realm of agreement. And it's that really this idea that the strong cannot use their strength and their power and wealth to exert their sexual desire on somebody else and squelch on them is based upon a, an underlying belief that all humanity is of equal worth and of equal dignity. And so everyone's desires ought to be honored. You shouldn't have somebody who has wealth and status taking advantage of somebody who has lesser wealth and lesser status. We say that is foul to do. It is wrong. It is perverted because all humanity is of equal worth and dignity and their desires ought to be valued. Now, question, where does that belief come from? Where does the idea that humanity is of equal worth and dignity come from? Now, of course, in our Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But of course, throughout the history of the world, it has never been self-evident that all people are created equal. In fact, uh, this idea of human equality is a latecomer in human history, and it entered into the world in the first century through a very particular kind of community that was shaped by the values of Jesus. Luc Ferry, who's a well-known French philosopher, he has this great little philosophical, philosophical, this is a new word I'm coining, it's a philosophical book, um, a philosophical book, thank you, called A Brief History of Thought. And throughout this book, he goes through kind of a history of philosophy, and he talks about the unique contribution that Stoicism brought, you know, that the secular humanism brought, and, you know, so on and so forth. He kind of talks about the unique contributions of each philosophical system. Now, it's important to point out that Luke Ferry is a secular humanist. He does not believe in God. He's an atheist. And yet he writes, when he writes about Christianity, he says something dramatic, a whole new notion, a whole new idea entered into human history through the church. And here's what he says. He says, the Greek world was fundamentally an aristocratic world where some were born to command and others to obey, which is why Greek political life accommodates so easily to slavery and patriarchy and misogyny. And then he says this, in direct contradiction... Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. 
And he points out, he says, even in secular France, he says the French Revolution itself, even though he says it, it doesn't readily acknowledge it, he says its foundations are actually in Christianity and this idea that Christianity brought into the world. And it is this idea that actually helps shape and inform the idea that, look, everyone's desires ought to be honored. You, couldn't, you shouldn't have the strong take advantage and foist their desires upon the weak. And on this, Christianity and the broader culture agrees. But let's now talk for a bit about where we disagree, shall we? So there are also areas of disagreement. There's areas in which the Christian sexual vision is very distinct from the culture. And I find distinction in at least two areas. Number one revolves around the area of cultural or creational norms. You see, within the church, what we believe is that the world ultimately belongs to God that God is the ground of all being, that God is the ground of existence, that God called all things that are into being, that God rules over the world with His sovereign will, and that He is ultimately the King over all creation. And so as created beings who are finite, we live within the boundaries of God's creational norms. And this is very different from our culture. You see, what our culture is beginning more and more to exalt is human autonomy. The word autonomy means self, that's auto, and namas is law. We have become a law to ourselves where each individual is invited to create for themselves whatever they want without the, without the finite boundaries of their own physical body and their own physical makeup and to throw off the boundaries that God has instilled within the created world. And so that's one area. And Paul actually appeals to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because the very foundation of what he says in chapter 7 is based upon what he says in chapter 6 about God's intention for sexuality, which is grounded in creation. The two shall become one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus said, when he was talking about sexuality, he grounded it back in creation. He said, from the beginning, it was not that way, when he was talking about divorce and confronting it. And so he grounds sexuality in norms within creation. But not only that, what, is, what Paul is doing, and even, I think an even greater level, is he is actually grounding Christian sexuality not only in creational norms, but also in God's own redemptive love. You see, God, according to Scripture, is love. God is that eternal, infinite ocean of love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit marked from all eternity past by ongoing self-giving love where ultimately God calls all things into existence out of His own self-giving love. And then God's self-giving love becomes flesh and blood among us in Jesus when Jesus gives Himself away for us sacrificially on the cross. And it is this self-giving love marked by mutual understanding of the other and seeking the well-being of the other. It is this sacrificial, self-giving love that ought to shape our own sexual lives. In other words, God is seeking to form us into a community of character, a community of people, individuals, who our own lives more and more are being fashioned after God's own self-giving love in Jesus. Recently, I've been re reading a book uh, called um, The Warmth of Other Sons. 
and it's about the, the great migration of African Americans in the South up to the cities in the North between the, the years of 1917 up to 1970. And it's a fascinating account of life in the Jim Crow South that is absolutely uh, depressing in some ways, and it is shocking. And there's one little incident that uh, the author accounts of, uh, of a couple um, uh, African-American uh, boys and girls who are walking down the street, and some white children come out of the church on a Sunday morning, and they start throwing rocks at the kids and, and calling them all kinds of names. And the, the uh, little black children look up at their, their, their mother and they say, what kind of God are they worshiping in that building? What God do they worship? Because their actions are reflecting a different kind of God. And when it comes to our own sexual actions, it ought to reflect the God who is revealed in Jesus. In other words, our own physical enjoyment of one another ought to be shaped not by selfishness, not by simply trying to meet our own needs, but always extending outside of ourselves to understand and to please and delight and know and care for and, and be concerned with the well-being of the other. And this is God's place for sexuality and marriage. And so now, let me just um, close with just a few words talking very practically to us, because Paul is giving us really direct, practical advice in this text. Now, I am not Dr. Ruth, and I, I didn't come this morning in order to give you all of my grand wisdom about sexuality and technique or something like this, but I do want to draw upon what Paul says here to kind of draw out a, just a, a couple things for, for those of you who might find yourself in a place where you're single and those of us who might find ourselves in, in marriage. And let me just talk for a minute to the single people, though I, I know that what I'm going to say here is going to apply to hopefully everyone else in the room. Listen, when you become a follower of Jesus, you are on a journey of becoming. God is taking each one of us on a journey of becoming more and more and more like His Son, Jesus. Most of us, when we enter into the Christian life, most of us right now, most of us in this room, there's a whole lot of areas in our lives where we just don't look like Jesus, where we are self-centered, where we're self-absorbed, where we're self-focused, where we're a bit arrogant, uh, where we kind of ignore the needs of others. We don't really care about the marginalized and the poor and injustice and all this stuff. We're just kind of into me and getting it for myself and patting my life with comfort and security and stuff and shopping and entertaining and, and just kind of moving on in life. And Jesus wants to transform us more and more so that we learn how to reflect in our own life, our embodied existence in this world, His own sacrificial love and His glad self-giving for the life of the world. And so, you are on an exciting journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. Isn't that good news? How many of you want to remain where you're at right now? I don't. But one area where your life is going to be conformed to the, area of, to the, to the likeness of Jesus is in your sexuality, where in your own kind of practice your own discipline, you begin to practice sacrifice 
and self-denial and self-control and self-discipline, desiring to be faithful to Jesus because your practice of fidelity will carry into your marriage, which you want to have marked by absolute faithfulness to your spouse and sacrificial love and looking out for the needs of the others. And so right now, you want to be formed into that kind of person through your practices. I was reading another book uh, this last week uh, called Unbroken. Anybody here read Unbroken? The great story of Louis, uh, what is it, Samperini? But it's so cool. The beginning of the, the story, he was a great runner. He ran in the Olympics, fought in World War II and all this stuff. But he, um, in the beginning, it was pretty cool because he, he talks about how he got into running. And he was this total hoodlum of a kid. He was just uh, the terror of the neighborhood. And his brother tried to get him into running. And he said when he started running, he absolutely hated it. What he wanted to do was just eat terrible, to smoke and to drink, and he was just abusing his body and was not doing good stuff, and he didn't feel like running, didn't like running. But the funny thing happened, as he disciplined himself to run day by day, week by week, there came a point in his life where there was a transition, and all of a sudden, he couldn't imagine not running. It became a part of who he was because he trained his body to actually love to run. And this is what we need to do. We need to train our bodies to love faithfulness, to love self-sacrifice, because this is, what is where, where life is found. It is not found when you live for yourself. You all know that. And so he says, look, practice fidelity, practice sacrificial love, because this is ultimately where sexuality is to find its expression. And the problem, you know, the problem with, with all kinds of forms of self-sex in our culture, which are, which are becoming increasingly more and more common, is that it provides the release of sex without the hard work and the joy of a relationship with another human being. And this is where life is found, is by cultivating a rich, deep relationship with another human being who you seek to understand and who understands you and who you love and who loves you back. And, and this is where sexuality defines this expression. And so you need to discipline yourself so that you can know the joy of that kind of relationship. But let me just talk to you who are married for a second. So Paul here speaks interestingly, I think. Look at what he says back in verse 5 again. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. And this is interesting because he is saying, look, he said, look, again, sex, your physical intimacy in your marriage, it is not simply a place where, you know, one party, the man can find, you know, expression and pleasure at the expense of the woman or the woman find pleasure at the expense of the man, but both are to be enjoying one another. And both are to be seeking to bring pleasure to each other and to seek to understand one another because you can't bring somebody pleasure unless you really understand them. And you can't understand them unless you have conversations with them. And you can't have conversations unless you're willing to sit down and make time for conversations. And you can't make time for conversations unless you are willing to be honest when you speak with each other and disclose your heart and be real and truthful and gracious. Remember years ago, uh, my old senior pastor, he preached a, a sermon on, on sexuality, and the title of the sermon was uh, Great Sex Begins in the Kitchen. And I think what he was talking about was, was that oftentimes it's in the kitchen, working together, talking together, that your own 
relationship, your own intimacy is being developed. You're being on it. You're taught, you, you know, and that's really where it all begins. And most of you know this, right? And yet we can neglect this over time. We can get into unhealthy patterns in our relationship where we use sex as a tool of manipulation and control and coercion and punishment or reward or whatever. And, or we can just be self-satisfied and ignore the needs of the other. And Paul says that is such a distortion of God's intention. You see, sexuality is to be a, a, a physical expression, almost like a sacrament of the mar- very marriage covenant itself. Marriage is about giving yourself to another person. It's about caring for another person. It's putting their needs ahead of your own. And so sexuality is an expression. It's a physical expression of the oneness that you have in your covenant. Now, I recognize that within this room, I can get up in, in, you know, 35 minutes or whatever, just spout off a bunch of stuff about all of this sexuality, you know, And it's different in our homes and in our lives and in our marriages. And each one of us have unique stories when it comes to sexuality. Many of us have unique experiences of pain and abuse and hurt. We've had our own difficulties in our marriage. We've had our own difficulties with our bodies. We've had our own struggles in all of these things. And it's just hard. And some people are in addictive patterns and it's enslaving. And like, I, I recognize that there's a whole world underneath simple stuff that I'm throwing out there. But you have to be willing to honestly go below the surface with each other to talk together if you're single, to talk with roommates and, and um, friends and to disclose kind of where your struggles are and where you need help and where you need accountability. And if you're married, to honestly disclose with your spouse what's going on in your life and where your struggles are. I actually think that one of the, the issues in the evangelical church when it comes to sexuality is we've so exalted this idea of an accountability group over here where a bunch of men get together and talk to other men or women get over here and talk to each other, that there's, there's, there's increasingly a failure to actually honestly talk to each other. And we need to speak openly and honestly and graciously to each other. This is what Paul is assuming. Do you see it in the text? He says, unless by agreement. You don't reach agreement about your own spirituality and your own sexuality unless you're having conversations <laughs> and unless you're seeking to understand each other. Now, how can we ever move into this radical vision, this beautiful ethic? Well, it's only by receiving a power and a strength outside of ourselves. And of course, this is the good news of the gospel, is that wherever you find yourself, whether you are filled with guilt or shame or you're addicted or you're, you've got issues and you're, you're embarrassed and, and, and wherever you find your, yourself, God knows you better than you know yourself and he loves you still. And he has actually come after you in passionate love so that he might bear in himself, in his death on the cross, your sin and your shame and your guilt and break its power so that you can know freedom and so that you, in receiving his love, might become an agent of his love in every sphere, in every realm of your life. And this is the way that Jesus is calling us into. It is the beautiful, the life-giving way. It is a way of openness and receptivity to the love of God in our own life, 
to recognize that it is not your shame, it is not your stupid decisions in the past that have the last word over your life. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has the final say over your life. God's action in Jesus Christ is stronger than any stupidity you've gotten yourself involved in, and you can be forgiven, you can be set free, you can come clean, but you need to be honest with God. God can deal with so much junk in your life, but He cannot deal with somebody who is hiding and dishonest. And so you need to come to Him and receive His love afresh. Be honest with Him. Begin hard conversations or good conversations. Not everything is hard. And then go out and to seek to practice this in singleness and in your married lives, this life-giving way of faithfulness, sacrificial, self-giving love, mutual submission, mutual belonging, mutual understanding, always looking out for the good of the other. Is there, I don't know, like what's wrong with that vision of sexuality? Like isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that beat one night stands and tender and whatever stuff is going on in our culture and all that? Like there's something more beautiful, something better that God has in store for us, but we don't get there without going through a, a, a path and a journey and some difficult work. And so let's be a community together that is seeking to walk in the way of Jesus in every sphere of our life, including this one. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now this morning, and I thank you, God, that we don't have to hide. I thank you that we cannot hide because you see all and you know all. And we thank you that you see us with your eyes of love and grace and forgiveness. God, you see all of the pain, some in this room who have experienced abuse and difficulty who have been taken advantage of, who have not been known or understood, who, who have been maybe married to somebody who has not taken time to understand that. I just pray, God, that you would meet us wherever you find us. And I pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, that we might live in this world as your faithful disciples, and that we might know the life and the joy that you have come to bring to us. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.